You're listening to a podcast from St. Barts. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, today we come to the very final week in our mini-series, our launch series for the year, as we once again consider our mission. Our mission here at St. Barts is to make immature disciples of Jesus. The first week we looked at make disciples, second mature, this week we come to multiply. There's an outline on the back of the news, and there's translation points there in English, Korean, Dinka, and simplified Chinese, so please make use of those if that's of help to you. But right now, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privileges to know you, to be recipients of your grace and participants in your mission. Would you please help us this very day in the power of your spirit to be a community with a long vision, active in nurturing disciple-making disciples, along with other communities who are committed to the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the book of Acts, the growth of the church rings out like the sounding of a bell. When Patrice, my wife, when Patrice and I lived in Durham in the northeast of England, one of the great joys was the regular ringing of the bells from either the cathedral or our local church, St Nick's. We could hear that from our flat. It was really extraordinary that even though you have these really heavy century-old bells in the towers, they can't, of course, move from those, when they are rung, the sound is unleashed. It is dispersed far and wide. That sound, that joyous noise, seems to reverberate across the entire landscape. It permeates, it gets to every corner, every crevice of the town. And in a strange way, it even seems unconstrained by time with its tolling echoing beyond that point in which it is struck. To me, that's what the growth of the early church sounds like. Over and over and over again, with the effects of that reverberating far into the future, even right to today. The Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Many who heard the message believed. More and more people were added to the Lord. The number of disciples increased. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now, I'm not going to do my best impression of a bell tolling. You'll be really happy to know, but you get the picture. The church grew and grew and grew. But I wonder, as you hear of these early accounts of the church growing, or even as you witness or hear about pockets of the church growing today, how do you respond? Perhaps you're really excited by that. You're really enraptured by it. You're attracted to the spectacular, the the seemingly successful, the extraordinary, the loud and the large, and you long for revival en masse. To you, that's the only revival that counts. No, go big or go home. Perhaps as you hear about that, you're cynical or a bit suspicious, thinking, oh, here we go again. Christianity grasping for more, longing for ascendancy. You might doubt the account, think it's a bit inflated or perhaps shallow or fleeting. Perhaps you're suspicious of any movement that attempts 
or appears or aspires to be growing. Perhaps as you hear it, you're actually a bit overwhelmed, even deflated or downcast, thinking, oh, I can't do this. Where do we even begin? When you hear of census after census of the decline of Christianity in Australia, you just feel crushed. What do we do with this? What does this mean for our mission? Should we pursue growth just for growth's sake? Have we failed when we don't reach such lofty heights? As we begin the year once again immersing ourselves in our mission, how should these early accounts, and especially their experience, their reality of the church growing and growing and growing, how should that inform our mission to make a mature disciples of Jesus? So this is not some sort of large church mantra. This isn't prosperity growth propaganda. We are here today because the gospel rang out then, starting with a very small group, a nucleus of people, and because it has continued to ring out, continued to multiply out ever since. Our method in the series has been to consider some of the snapshots of the early church in light of the Great Commission of Jesus. So that's also the approach that we're going to take today. And I think what we see is that when it comes to multiplying disciples, we witness three key things. The principle of multiplying disciples, the practice of multiplying disciples, and the power of multiplying disciples. So let's begin first with the principle. Multiplying disciples is focused on forming disciple-making disciples. So let's have a look once again at Matthew chapter 28, picking up at verse 18. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Over the last two weeks, I think we've seen with real clarity how we are compelled as a church in our mission, in our conviction to make mature disciples of Jesus, because that pursuit is directly connected with Jesus' command. Make disciples, of course. Jesus dispatched the disciples to proclaim the good news on the very authority of Jesus himself, every disciple shares in varied ways part of that call. We're passionate as a church in praying for and seeking to help people become followers of Jesus. Mature disciples? Yes, of course, for Jesus' command was not only to make disciples, but that they would be taught to obey everything that he has commanded us. That's a lifelong and whole-of-life pursuit. We're all works in progress and we all share and contribute to that work. So we're passionate as a church in praying for and doing everything we can to grow in maturity. But multiplied disciples, hang on, where is that? I'm actually almost embarrassed to say that really it was only last year that I saw this with a clarity when I was listening to a talk from a friend of mine who is Bishop Rick Thorpe. He's also the head of the Centre for Church Multiplication, the Gregory Centre in London. And it's only when I listened to his talk that it became so clear that multiplying disciples is, of course, absolutely part of Jesus' great commission. It's baked in. And now I can't, un- now I can't thankfully, unsee it 
It's so simple, but so obvious. So let's go back again to Matthew chapter 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So I want you to put a bit of underline under the everything. So if Jesus' commission was to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he had commanded them, all that he had commanded them, then that therefore must include this very command, to go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that they too, as they become disciples of Jesus, are also forming other disciple-making disciples. Can you see the logic there? Not everyone is shaped, placed, or called to do that in precisely the same way. But nonetheless, every disciple takes their place as a disciple-making disciple. Discipling someone is not just getting them over the line. It's about equipping them, thoroughly equipping them as disciple-making disciples. In our culture, I think we often like to think that religion is some sort of private endeavour, what you believe. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. But, but never let those two things cross, whatever you do. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not exist for your own benefit. Now, that doesn't give us permission to be insensitive or arrogant. But as disciples of Jesus, we can't be anything but committed to others being caught up in that good news and then being enabled to take their part in the sharing of that good news. That's actually always been the trajectory of God's mission. Not only that God would pioneer a way for some to be his people and he to be their God, but that God's very people would be part of all people, every nation, embracing him as Lord. As you read through the New Testament, with that particular lens, especially Acts and the letters, so the really correspondence to the really early communities, the first Christian communities, I think it's extraordinary to see how they just seem to implicitly get this in both the big and the small. They recognise that being a disciple, which means being a disciple-making disciple, is not easy. Therefore, they invested abundant prayer, time, resources, energy into the deep formation of individuals in the very recognition that those individuals will also be part of that work that they too would go and do the same. So I just want you to consider how that works on an individual level to begin with. So as you take your part in discipling someone, that could be praying for them, inviting them, sharing good news, teaching them, showing them the love of Christ, amazing things, as incredible as that is, as extraordinarily privileged as that is, you're actually not just discipling them. Now, if we're seeking to form disciple-making disciples, then that work of discipling them in the big and the small is actually multiplying out whoever they disciple and in turn whoever that person disciples and the one after that and the one after that and so on and so forth. So let me give you an example. If you disciple one person uh, each year for 10 years, at the end of 10 years, you will have discipled 
Not a trick question. Ten people, okay? Great. But if each year you disciple one disciple, who then disciples someone else, who then disciples someone else, and that continues on, that number multiplies out. So that by in year five, there are 16 people being discipled. In, in year six, there are 32 people being discipled. In year 10, there are over 500 people being discipled. Cumulatively, over that 10 years, over 1,000 people will be being discipled. Now, I know it's not always that simple or straightforward. This can seem like a simple formula, but this is anything but formulaic. For this is the very way that God, in the power of his spirit, through the prayer and gifts of his people, has chosen to spread his word and grow his church. I think it's really incredible that God can take even our most meagre and the weakest of our efforts and in his loving grace he can multiply that out through those whom we connect with and those whom they disciple and so on. Over the last few months I've been really trying to consider this and what this means with my my own kids and I have to tell you that as I think about that it fills me with both trepidation and excitement. Trepidation because it reminds me or challenges me or convicts me of just how much is on the line. For I'm potentially not just discipling one, but a long line of people who follow them. Excitement, because I'm not just discipling the one who I see, the one before me, but the long line of people who follow after them. That's the principle. We long to form not only disciples, but disciple-making disciples. So how do we do that? That's the second point, the practice. We do it primarily in communities of disciple-making disciples. We get a little glimpse of that in Acts chapter 6, so let's pick up from verse 1 of chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The early church is made up of communities of disciple-making disciples. But as the church grows, really at a phenomenal pace, uh, new issues and new challenges surface very quickly. The Hebraic Jews here are likely those who are from the immediate region. The Hellenistic Jews are, are Greek-speaking, those who may have lived away from Jerusalem and had been part of the, the Jewish diaspora, that is the, the dispersion around the Mediterranean, but now they're back. Not only do these now Christians have varied expressions of Judaism and language and culture, but it seems that the situation was compounded by many widows who would have returned, this seems to be the practice, they returned to Jerusalem or the vicinity of Jerusalem to live out their final days. And so the church is growing, backgrounds are varied, needs are diverse, and the demands are compounding. This isn't a systematic theology of how to be a community of disciple-making disciples. This is real life. As they work the issue through, it's like a case study of the sorts of 
practices, the typical practices that shape the inward and the outward dimensions of their community. Inwardly, we see that everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a role to play. As the apostles, along with the community, try to figure out the best way to address their growing pains, note that they don't dismiss or diminish the issue in any way. They know, the apostles know, that their priority must be teaching the word of God. That must be their focus. We read verse 2. It would not be right for us to neglect the word of God. But they also know that it would not be right for them to neglect the ministry, in this instance, of care. It's interesting, actually it's really significant, that the word used to describe those who serve at the tables and those who serve here in teaching, it's actually the very same word in the original language. And so we're getting a glimpse already as the church grows and grows up that there's no second-class ministry. Or as John Stott puts it, no ministry superior, no ministry inferior. Accordingly, note the people they appoint to the ministry of the care of the widows are to be those full of the spirit, that is, those who live lives in accordance with the spirit, and those full of wisdom, that is, those who not only have knowledge of God or God's word, but those who can discern things in accordance with what the Lord's will is. And so the point is that this glimpse shows us that not only does everyone have a part to play, but that every part works towards the word going out. Just note at the end of this little section, we see in the roll-up summary what the effect is, that the word of God spread. That's the consequence of them getting this all organised and sorted. Whilst, of course, the ministry of the word is not just limited to a sermon on a Sunday, it involves many parts of our lives and, and parts of our service as we pray, hear, read, sing and proclaim. I'm really conscious that, that the only reason that I and other people who preach can be privileged to stand up on a Sunday and unpack God's word together is because there's a whole body participating in the life of our church in a multitude of ways. As we seek in practice to be a community of disciple-making disciples, that involves us deploying our prayer, finances, gifts, time, hospitality, and witness. And of course, it's not just here in Acts chapter 6 that we see that glimpse of that in action, but we see it all throughout the New Testament. Some of the obvious points are 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or Romans 12, or Ephesians chapter 4, that every part of the body matters because God is the source of all that we have and it's his purposes that we ultimately serve. But let's note that as these early communities took their part in God's mission, they did so not only by nurturing the inner life of their community, but also outwardly nurturing the life of others in other communities. As we read of the history and the practice of the early church, we see time and time again that not only were they passionate, really passionate, devoted about nurturing the health of their community of disciple-making disciples, but they were also really committed to praying for the spread of the gospel, training gospel leaders, sending gospel leaders out, and planting new communities of disciple-making disciples. As a church, we have so much to give thanks for as God has been so faithful to us. 
we have witnessed some incredible fruit in the making and maturing of disciples. But God and his kindness has, has multiplied that out in some extraordinary ways, ways that we see in far more ways, I'm sure, that are unseen. As you just think over the last decade, we can give thanks that four people have been raised up and or trained here and sent out to lead other churches. Almost 60% of our interns have continued to work in some form of paid gospel ministry. Right now, we actually have far more people applying for internships than we can possibly offer. As we've started some work in, in vocational dinners, over 30 people have come along to those. Right now, we're continuing to pray and work towards, as part of Vision 2025, God willing, planting a new community of disciple-making disciples in Brisbane, not to expand our territory, but so that work can be multiplied out, so that they too can make disciples and pray, train, send out gospel workers and plant new communities. This is not grounds for boasting, but cause for thanks and a basis to embrace the challenge. You know, how, how amazing would it be if in a few decades' time, if this community, so right here in Toowoomba, and those joining us live, this community was not only still really faithfully committed to its mission, but actually over that time, if, if we had sent 20 full-time leaders out to, to lead churches or missionaries to be sent out, or if there are five or more new gospel-shaped communities that have been planted... Is it costly? Absolutely. With our prayer, our finances, our gift and our time. Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. It will stretch us and keep bringing us to our knees in prayer. But just look at the power, the fruit of what is possible. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This isn't the formula for success. It is the power of God at work. This June, it will actually be the 90th anniversary. It will be 90 years since the very first service of the, the Church of England, as it was known back then, but the very first Church of England service was actually held in Middle Ridge, 90 years in June. It would be a few more years before St Bart's was established. But I have to say, I am so thankful to God for those who are not only committed to the call of Jesus, who really sought to make and mature disciples, but also that they were so committed to nurture new communities of believers so that they could take their part in making and maturing disciple-making disciples from one generation to the next and right up to today. But, you know, even that 90 years, that's not our beginning. Because in one way or another, each one of our stories, and actually the beginning of every Christian community, find its, finds its origin looking right back some 2,000 years to Jesus, who continues to be with us today. Now, this would be of course, impossible, of course, but perhaps one day we'll know. But imagine if you could hear the stories of, of every person and every community who's been part of the story of you coming to faith, the people who've influenced you and the communities and people who influenced them and so on and so forth and keep going back right to Jesus. 
It would be like following the most extraordinary thread of faithful followers and communities through the tapestry of time. And every single thread would find its beginning with Jesus. Jesus spent most of his time only with a really small group of followers. But one from generation to the next, it is multiplied out. It is multiplied out to us. I love to think that, you know, if the Lord has not yet returned in 90 years' time, who here will be here will know the Lord? What communities will exist? Because of us. Psalm 78 is one of my most favourite psalms and it speaks of the extraordinary privilege and the responsibility it is for God's people to declare the word of God, of who God is, of what he has done. It says, Tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. In fact, before this part of the building, so the part that we're sitting in right now, before this part of the building was actually built, a group of us gathered out here. Some people will remember this. We, we gathered. It was outside then. And as we prayed and as we drove a stake in the ground right here, it had some of those words of Psalm 78 written on that very stake. But what's kind of amazing is as God's people here in this psalm recall the Lord's command to te- that their ancestors were taught to teach their children so that next generation would know them, it doesn't stop there. For it says teach their children so that the next generation and the generation after that and even those who are not yet born will know the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. That they would put their trust in him and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Our mission is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ for God's glory. But in God's kindness, that's not just for those who we see, but even for those who are not yet. Not so that we can be bigger, but so that the word of the Lord would continue to ring out until the trumpet sounds, until the Lord returns. So let's pray and ask help from God with that. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the extraordinary privilege it is to know you, to be recipients of your grace and to be joined together as your body right here in the season of life together. Lord, We want to take time right now to thank you for those who have really been part of our story in coming to put our trust in you. We thank you for those who we know about, but also likely the countless who prayed for us, who witnessed to us without us even noticing. We thank you for the generations who witnessed to them and those who've gone before and every community and individual who's been part of that thread leading all the way back to Jesus. This extraordinary work, Lord, through you and the power of your spirit, that we today might rejoice that we know you and know the salvation that your son brings. Lord, we thank you for our part in that, that every single person has a part to play in helping to nurture disciple-making disciples. Lord, would you please grow our vision in accordance with your will and your kingdom purposes, 
Lord, please help us continue to nurture us as a community that we would be committed to not only making disciples, making disciples here, but also nurturing other communities that they too may take their part in proclaiming your good news from one generation to the next until the Lord returns. Lord, would you please help us with that? In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.